Welcome to Mintcast, the podcast by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. I'm Moss. I'm Bill. I'm Norbert. And I'm Josh T. No relation to ice. This is episode 384, recorded on Sunday, the 3rd of April, 2022. Livestream information is at mintcast.org slash livestream. If you see something you'd like to hear about, tell us. Send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. Join us live on YouTube. Post at the Mintcast su- post to the Mintcast subreddit. Chat with us on Telegram, Discord, Facebook, or post directly at http colon slash slash mintcast.org. Well, somebody did Prob- post on the Mintcast subreddit. Mm, and it, yes, it ended up and it ended up being interesting. We'll get there. We'll get there. Slow, slow your roll. Everyone should have their mics shut until I tell them to. <laughs> okay. First up in the news. Google has an NVMe problem. Arch has a new installer. Deepin unlocks your face. Fedora and Ubuntu have betas and they both default to Wayland on NVIDIA. And Mintcast gets the April Fool's treatment. In security and privacy, Red Hat has an eye patch. Another kernel vul- I knew I wouldn't say that. Another kernel vulnerability found, and Lumen finds more threats in WSL. Then in our wanderings, I'm in reconstruction again. Bill is driving himself crazy. Josh is getting steamy, and Norbert did some things. In our innards section, we discuss some of the newer additions to Linux and what we think about them. And finally, the feedback and a couple of suggestions. We expected Joe here, but he got called away at the last minute. Wish you were here, Joe. I see nobody has picked items. Do I have to read it all? I'll go ahead and do the first one if you want. (laughs) Okay. Um, The news. (laughs) Google has a problem with Linux server reboots due to too many NVMe drives. This is from Pharonix. Um... Hyperscaler problems these days. Linux servers taking too long to reboot due to having too many NVMe drives. Thankfully, Google is working on an improvement to address. This is where some of their many drive servers can take more than one minute for the Linux kernel to carry out its shutdown tasks. Due to the synchronous nature during the shutdown handling, each NVMe drive can take about four to five seconds to shut down. With Google servers now having 16 plus NVMe drives or devices, uh, this can make an extra minute to shut down and go through the reboot phase. The proposed patches from Google allow for an optional asynchronous shutdown interface at the bus level. The new interface maintains backwards compatibility with the synchronous implementation. As a part, as part of all these patches all pci express based devices are moved to use the async interface implements of the changes at the pci level implements the changes at the pci level and then changes the nvme driver to exploit the async shutdown interface not so easy to read is it bill (laughs) (sighs) we're getting there (laughs) This issue Google, Good morning, everybody. This issue Google has, <laughs> it's the epitome of suffering from success. Yeah. Yeah, they were talking about this on, uh, was it uh, Linux Action News? 
That was the first I heard about it. And I didn't know that this was a problem, but I I tried it out in a server of my own making. And yeah, in fact, they, they shut down one after the other, which maybe nobody thought of that. Maybe it just wasn't a problem until recently. I don't know. Now I wonder, I have two NVMe drives. So should I theoretically experience maybe a two to five second decrease in shutdown times? When well, I mean, if you need that that time back in your life, yeah, I I think it just it only really becomes a problem at large scale where you've got these people uh, like Google that have got large online uh, resources, you know, where they need things to shut down and reboot as quick as possible. A shutdown job is running two seconds out of unlimited time. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, but here we are speaking, you know, from our from our computers that have two or three drives, you know, you got a server that's got 16 of them running, maybe it maybe it is an issue, I guess. I didn't even know it was a thing. Yeah, especially when you have those massive server farms and yeah. these huge buildings, I can imagine that in aggregate that's probably a lot of time. Server farms of our servers are raised. <laughs> But moving on. Free range servers. Yeah. <laughs> Improved Arch Linux installer experience to come with Arch Install 2.4. This is from Foranix. Debuting a year ago was the Arch Install Debuting a year ago was the Arch Install script as a way to carry out quick and easy installations of Arch Linux. The text user interface is very easy to use and provides some levels of defaults. Arch Install 2.4 is being prepared as the next feature update and is working on a completely new TUI, Terminal User Interface, which is I recently learned is not the same as CLI, uh, Common Line Interface, because I think a Common Line, common line Interface is just uh, when it puts out lines of text, but a, t- but a TUI is something like HTOP where you can, where it, it's not just lines of text, where it, you can even interact it, uh, so it's an interactive output. For example, like Anchor's installers, like that of Debian's, which is similar to this one. So this is also this also looks like one of those installers when you can use the keyboard to go and select options. So it looks way more intuitive than the previous one. Yeah, and the TUI gives you like up and down functionality, and then hit the enter button to, you know, yeah. connect the things as though they were graphical. So it's like in curses. In curses, yeah. yeah okay. I think it says the new menu system is making use of simple term menu. So I'm not sure if it's curses, but it's something very really similar. This new version also has improvements to the ButterFS file system handling code that can now allow for more complex layouts and specifying ButterFS transparent file system compression options and the, na- and the no data copy on write mode. So basically you can create and mount uh, subvolumes as well, which I think it couldn't do before. Arch Install 2.4 also has many API additions and improvements for those carrying out Python scripting around this Arch Linux installer. Fun fact, the very, very early versions of Arch Linux used to have an installer, but it got deprecated because they, I think they didn't want to maintain it or they had troubles maintaining it. So for many years, the, the status quo for Arch has been, you have to just install it manually, but I think uh, I'm more and more on board with this script being a thing, especially if it's if it be, if it's becoming better and better. Because 
yeah, you can learn a lot by installing Arch manually, but uh, it's it just uh, the problem with with a graphical installer on Arch is that it you got two choices: either you ins you provide an installer that gives you some very basic uh, functionality. Uh, uh, it, it gives you options to do an installation one or a few ways or else uh, you just don't have one at all because the problem with it on Arch is that people that use Arch and myself included, we have so many esoteric, so many individual ways of setting up our, our partitions and our sub volumes on ButterFS. That's one of the biggest problems I had with a graphical installer is that I like to make my own uh, partition scheme, my own sub volume scheme, you know, that kind of thing. And then I like, there's a lot of things I like to choose. And you also have to, when it's time to uh, bootstrap all of your initial packages, you have to actually choose what type of kernel you're going to use, whether it's the LTS kernel or the base kernel or the, oh gosh, you've got a few uh, choices right there from the uh, repo. Uh, Zen. But the Arch, Arch yeah, you got the script, Zen, does, yeah. does, does, it does give you the choice between the three kernels. Yeah. I, I can just imagine, though, in the beginning, that might have been a... You either you either had to make this huge, complicated thing with all of these options built into it, or else you had to make something that just gave you a base install of... Uh, of, uh, of Arch with a... Uh, ext4 partition scheme you know like most distros do and well, then look, look at the installer on calculate and don't copy that one is that is that a bad i've never i've never tried calculate is that a bad one calculate has a very in-depth very detailed installer that sounds like it's completely understandable and by the time you're done you've messed up something well is it an anaconda <laughs> Installer. Nope, they wrote their own. No, someone described Anaconda as like the Anaconda installer as like a choose your own adventure game, or what? Yeah. Or what? A sort of RPG <clears throat> game, which is well, it's Anaconda. I don't understand, and they still make the wrong decision. But I, it calculate sounds perfectly understandable, and you, and you think you know what you're doing, and when you're done, you did something wrong, and there's no way to to get it right other than go back and start over. I think for a <laughs> distro like uh arch though anaconda might have been a good way to go because you do have the opportunity to add you can either leave it you know with something basic that everybody's used to or you can add features and uh options for a more customized uh install by well, arco arco uses calamaris and they have a beginning and an expert version of it and you pick yeah. what you're doing, and it's still Calamaris, but you have all the options you need. So no one's yeah. going to address the elephant in the room and ask if you use a Which script element? to get Arch on your system, do you still get the, the street cred to be able to say, I use Arch, by the way? Well, no, not once they find out. But you can you can lie, but you're just lying to yourself about what you really are. <laughs> well, if everyone who uses Arch does that, then it's a common experience. You might as well go use Manjaro at that point. Oops. Oh. <laughs> I, I you're still All right, let, let let's wrap that one. <laughs> one uh I, I have two things to add to this. One thing go, is, is that I'm I am a really big uh, advocate of having a beginner and an advanced option in yeah. installers in every settings everywhere. 
but by number one gripe with Anaconda. Sorry. But my but, not, but my number one gripe with Anaconda is that in partitioning they have three modes. They have the uh, easy mode, the advanced, and an even more advanced mode. But ironically, at least for me, the easy mode is the most confusing because it has this really weird interface. That's really the only thing I don't get about uh, Anaconda. And finally enough, out of the two advanced options, the more advanced options is seems more straightforward. It resembles a classical, just a list of partitions on the disk and you create partitions sort of a, a paradigm. But uh, with the Arch install script, I, I will probably still continue to just install Arch manually when I need it. Partly because I just wrote my own script for it, but also because there's uh, I don't use ButterFS or any sort of uh, advanced or esoteric uh, way of uh, snapshotting and stuff. But I don't like the fact that at least in the, the earlier versions, Arch install insisted on mounting the EFI partition on slash boot and not slash boot slash EFI. Yeah, which is very odd to me. Because I, I don't want my kernel which, which to Which is not an option if you're going to use, if you're going to install this next to Windows, because Windows only creates like a 100 megabyte uh, EFI system partition. If you're going to use that, then you have to you have to in, uh, mount that within the boot partition. That way you've got or, somewhere else to put the... Or maybe I'm wrong G because... Gparthead is your friend. Yeah. <laughs> you, you go in, you shrink the Windows partition to the right... And you make that... Uh, oh, for uh, God's sake, yeah. But <laughs> there's also another partition between the EFI and the uh, rest of the Windows partition. So you've got to not only shrink the Windows partition, move it you've to the move right. That one, yeah. Then you've got to move that other one. Next thing you know, you've, you've uh, dislocated Bonk. Windows, and it's not going to work right. But Windows has... Window, one of the Windows extra partitions is unmovable. Actually, and that, yeah, that's the other yeah. thing. I just don't screw but, around. Uh, no, I'm, no, I'm not okay. sure. I'm not sure if Arch puts well, the kernel on the FI partition because it does. I don't recall it. No, it doesn't. I if you no, I Arch install specifically because I I know that Popo has uh, complaints about if the EFI partition being too small, but I don't know if I've seen something similar with Arch install. I haven't tried it yet. I know that I I just I always give EFI its own partition inside of the boot partition, and then I just make the boot partition part of the, the root partition root partition that way i just don't have to worry about whether or not it's got enough space because if you leave it to its own device i think even if you do a stock like the mint install on my virtual machines gave the efi its own uh its own partition and then the kernel got in uh got written to the boot partition outside yeah. of that I don't generally like the idea of the of the kernel itself living in on the EFI partition because if something happens, let's say to the EFI partition, it's just gone for some reason. Yeah. If the kernel is on the root partition, you can still get your system to boot via some other bootloader you get from somewhere. But if your kernel is gone, then you most likely would have to reinstall. Or I'm I'm sure there's a way to re uh, to get the kernel to recover the kernel, but I'm I, I would have well, to. Well, also. Up. From a from a dual booting perspective, you don't want to put that anywhere where Windows can get at it too. Oh no, I I, I have two different you, <laughs> EFI yeah. partitions. For dual well, booting. I mean, if you didn't do that though, if you had if you had a one EFI partition that both Windows and Linux was using, and you had the kernel on that, then Windows 
at some point if it didn't like something being there besides besides an EFI stub, then it could erase it, and then you no, got. I think Windows just sometimes likes to like reformat the entire EFI partition without yeah. with no regard to what. So it's actually just not a good it. idea. But anyway, moving on. Yep. Okay. Deepin OS becomes the first Linux distro to offer face unlock from its FOSS. China-based Deepin developers have released version 20.5, and its main highlight is facial recognition. The stable kernel version is now upgraded to 5.15.24 with several bug fixes. Deepin is now offering the face-based biometric authentication method. It should work on laptops with built-in webcams. Once you enroll your face in the control center, you can log into the system with your face ID from the next time onwards. Other changes include an easier way of sending user feedback in their app store, custom folder management in the Deepin Mail app, and a pinned screenshots feature so that the captured screenshot remains on top of other application windows. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's scary to me. I don't like that at all. But you don't want to give your face to a Chinese company's distribution? Uh, to, to really anyone. I mean, it, it's scary enough looking at it in the mirror. I don't want to, I don't want to inflict it on anyone else. Yeah, I've got facial recognition on my Lenovo tablet, but it doesn't work that well, and I usually just hit my buttons to log in. Is it Android? Yeah, Android. It just got updated to 10. I saw this piece of news, and I saw that the publication date was April 1st, so I almost didn't include it because I thought it was just an April 1st uh, joke, but I looked it up, and multiple pages had the same news, so I assume it's genuine. The Chinese government wants you to think it's April Fool's. Ah. <laughs> okay, Norbert. Fedora 36 and Ubuntu 22.04 LTS betas have now been released. This is from 9to5Linux. Both distributions will ship with GNOME Shell version 42, although Ubuntu will not have the, the newest versions of those GNOME applications. I will have to... <coughs> I will restart the entire sentence, sorry. Both, di- both distributions ship with both distributions will ship with GNOME shell version 42, although Ubuntu will not have the latest versions of those GNOME applications that have been ported to GTK4, and instead ship with slightly older GNOME 41 versions. Audio. Except for those that uh, except for those where the 42 version hasn't been uh, ported to GTK4 at all. For example, uh, Nautilus, the file manager. An interesting thing to note is that while the long-awaited triple buffering feature, which should improve performance significantly, wasn't ready for GNOME 42 and therefore it won't be included in Fedora 36, Ubuntu 22.04 will include it in the form of a patch, which is what we referred to as Ubuntu out Fedora Fedora previously. Ubuntu 22.04 will also feature accent colors, which is another long-awaited feature. Ubuntu 22.04 is expected to release on April 21st, while Fedora 36 on April 26th, if everything goes well. I think Fedora's original release date uh, was planned to, to be April 19th, but it was pushed back by one week. Which is a, which usually happens, but it's also a good sign, because they don't want to release it if it's not, if they're not absolutely sure that it's ready, and all uh, uh, blocker bugs have been... I was just playing with uh, both of these betas this morning, and they both look pretty good. There's still some paper cuts in Ubuntu that need to be ironed out. I noticed the Snap Store is still only showing Snap packages. 
and desktop that's not a bug that's a feature you're right and um yeah the icons I'm on the sorry desktop. snap is a bug yeah the icons on the desktop didn't resize when you tried to resize your icons only the ones in the sidebar did so they, they still have a little work ahead of them but uh it's looking good in my opinion well i have sure on distro i'm pretty sure on distro hoppers we're going to do an all ubuntu episode in probably june after the first point release comes out no uh after the whole thing comes out because we have to have a whole month to work on the distro oh, oh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so everyone picks a different uh, flavor of ubuntu probably Knowing me, I'll probably pick an unofficial one. Which one? Well, I'm. I know of two. Very much friends. I am very much friends with uh, the guy that does uh, Ubuntu Unity. <clears throat> um, let's see. I guess Budgie has become official. Don't forget has Cinnamon it, um, too. There, Cinnamon is official now. Oh no, it's not official. It's so. still a remix. Mm-hmm. But it's out what there. What about? What about um? What was it called? Probably the I three. Uh, probably DDE is where I would go. DDE or or um, <clears throat> uh, Unity. Were you uh, referencing is Regolith, Regolith officially? Yeah. Yeah. Is that official yet? Would I care? Don't. <laughs> well, I mean, Thank if anybody you. wants to learn I three, if you if you got a system you're really trying to get the most out of, I three is a way to laser narrow down the uh, resources of your machine to the application you're running. Yeah, Regulate is basically... I am happy with Bodhi, thank you. Regulate combines... Bodhi's good too. Regulate combines GNOME with i3. But we should also probably uh, mention Ubuntu Rolling Rhino Remix, which was which recently has... Uh, I think it's a different approach with the same name, but it's essentially a unofficial Ubuntu Remix that turns Ubuntu into a rolling release distro by tracking the development branch. Yeah, Martin Wimpress started that, but I don't know what who's running it now. Yeah, use at your own risk. I don't know. Kind of defeats the purpose of Ubuntu, if you ask me. But I guess if you want to live on the or closer to the edge, anyway. I guess it's the equivalent of uh, uh, running Debian Seed, but yeah, for Ubuntu. I think that's some people run Debian Seed. They do. Well, let, let's let's follow up with what they're doing to Wayland now. Okay, so Ubuntu 22.04 LTS will default to Wayland with the NVIDIA proprietary driver, and this is from Pharonix. Ubuntu has been defaulting to GNOME on Wayland since 21.04 for Intel and AMD Radeon graphics. However, the NVIDIA proprietary driver has continued defaulting to the Xorg session. Over the past several months, NVIDIA has been working to address bugs in their Wayland support, and most notably, having implemented Generic Buffer Management, GBM, support within their walled garden. The NVIDIA 510 series driver especially is in good shape for Wayland, and especially with the well-tested GNOME Mutter Wayland compositor. The caveat is that it's only the case when using the NVIDIA 510 driver or newer and not when using any of the older legacy driver branches. And I'm AMD, so I can't really comment on this one. I'm NVIDIA, and I every time I see something related to Wayland and NVIDIA, I just put it in the show notes. And one important thing, that Fedora 36 will do the same. So both of these distros, both of the, I guess, the two big 
distros that have this uh, six month release schedule, the new versions in April will both default to Wayland on NVIDIA, which uh, will be interesting to see. I assume it will break functionality for a couple of people, but that in the long run, that should just uh, improve and benefit Wayland development. Okay, well, I'm anti-gnome, so I'm not going to care about that either. Uh, are you anti-gnome or are you just indifferent about gnome? I was going to ask the I, same thing. I'm anti-gnome. I'm anti-XFCE. Why? I'm indifferent about cinnamon. XFCE is really about... close, similar to cinnamon. I love all the open source projects. I just don't necessarily use them all. Okay. Well, anyhow. <laughs> We should not question our ethics here, people. We I'm not questioning my ethics. I'm questioning yours. <laughs> Accept me as I am, people. That's what you get. I do. I love you, Mom. Can you feel the love? Can you feel love it? Love it. <laughs> okay. We got a little elephant of our own here. Uh, Mintcast April Fools. On April 1st, a post appeared from Sid32 on the Mintcast subreddit announcing that Mintcast is moving to Spotify exclusively. This is not the case. <laughs> we that. do not know who Sid32 is. It might be a uh, <clears throat> alias for someone that is on the team, but nobody named Sid32 is on the team. So it probably was intended as an April Fool's joke, and it had to be addressed just in case someone didn't get it. I don't know what it would take to get us to move to Spotify exclusively, well, but probably Spotify approaching us themselves with a good contract, offering us yeah. enough money to retire That's it on. with a big stack it'd of be cash. Real, <laughs> it'd be real you hard. You really think I would sell out? Yes. Yeah. Oh really? gosh, I don't I know. I might Moss. quit the show, but I won't sell out. <laughs> We'd have to make another show just so we can have Moss on. But I got to right. tell you, <laughs> Spotify, if you're listening, everybody's got a I'm price, not, Moss. I'm not saying we've got a price. I'm not saying we don't. <laughs> I'm cheap. Well, you can you can tell our price because we don't run any ads. Right. right. And every, but, every time we mention something, we have to say, we are not a sponsor by... <laughs> no, we're just dumb enough to okay. do it all for free. Yeah. We give it's up our weekends. around here. Let's move on. All right. <laughs> Security and privacy update. Josh, did you want to start out here? Sure. Red Hat released a patch for recently discovered vulnerability that allowed for local privilege escalation, putting all manner of Linux systems potentially at risk. And this is from TechRadar. As explained in the advisory, the vulnerability tracked as CVE-2022-27666. Scary number there. Was discovered in IPEX. IPsec encapsulating security payload, or ESP6, crypto module, or in other words, a basic heap overflow vulnerability. The flaw was discovered by one, I'm going to butcher this, uh, Zhu, a graduate... I'd say Xiaoshenzhu. All right, thank you. Uh, my Chinese is not great. A uh, graduate student at the University of California, Riverside. He explained how the basic logic of his of this vulnerability is that the receiving buffer of a user message in ESP6 module is an 8-page buffer, but the sender can send a message larger than 8 pages, which clearly creates a buffer overflow. 
In Red Hat's advisory, the flaw was described as allowing a threat actor with normal user privilege to overwrite kernel heap objects, which may cause local privilege escalation. The vulnerability was given a severity score of 7.8. So that's fairly high. Ooh. Wait a minute, this isn't Halloween. Um, Norbert, you want to do the next one? Yeah. Okay, do it. There's been another vulnerability in the Linux kernel. This is on Linux edits. The vulnerability is CVE 2022-0995 and is present in the event tracking subsystem watch underscore queue and this causes data to be written to an area of kernel memory outside of the allocated buffer. The attack can be carried out by end user without privileges and have their code executed with kernel privileges. It was solved with a change added to the kernel on March 11th. So when they say kernel privileges, is that even higher than root privileges? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. But I, I think the vast majority of these uh, very bad vulnerabilities we hear about are local, uh, locally uh, exploitable. So it will, what will be really bad is that something similar comes out and it's remotely executable. Yeah, absolutely. If you have to have local access to the machine, that's that's another story, you know. But if it's remote executable, yeah, yeah, you would bad. have to you would have to break into a server farm. Which is not not as easy. So, as long as you don't leave your computer unattended somewhere where you don't trust people with your computer, you should be fine. Yeah, don't use one two three as your password. Don't even use one two three four. One two three four five six. Yes, but most password. I think most services require to have at least eight characters. Well, tack password on at the end or the beginning. Yeah, but if you're smart, you use something <clears throat> like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, nine. You just you just leave out eight. It's the ultimate unexpected. Yeah, leaving out one good number security. adds yeah. years of entropy to that number, and then run it through <laughs> a hash. <laughs> the way right, I've had it, right, the way right. I've had it explained to me is anything a anything a human can remember, a computer can. Anything a human can remember, a computer can hack in seconds. So, well, I the longer the password, the less hackable it is. I'm pretty and... confident in my passwords, but okay, but... really, yeah, really. You heard well... it here, folks. Yeah. Norbert wants you to hack his passwords. <laughs> Some somebody out there is going, oh yeah, click 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 click. <laughs> and this is a good time to talk about our sponsor, Bitwarden. <laughs> <laughs> flying. Well, that's I'm a lying. sponsor I wouldn't mind having, but we don't. Right. <laughs> Uh, Bill? Okay, so Lumen Security Research reveals threats still lurk in Windows subsystem for Linux. Who would have thought? Uh, this is from Markets Insider. Last fall, Black Lotus Labs, the threat intelligence team at Lumen Technologies, discovered what had until then only been theorized. Linux binaries were being used as loaders in Windows Subsystem for Linux, otherwise known as WSL. Since then, the team has analyzed more than 100 samples that indicate the compatibility is evolving. 
several of the samples leveraged custom-developed and open-source tools that could be used by actors to invade detection while gaining access to endpoints and computer networks. This new class of WSL-based attack demonstrates that Demonstrate, demonstrates the blurring boundaries between operating systems, said Michael Lee, director of threat intelligence at Black Lotus Labs. I think Michelle would be upset about Michelle that. Michelle Lee. Uh, <laughs> hmm. Anyway, because the types of users running WSL tend to have greater network privileges. Organizations that use WSL as part of their day-to-day operations should take note to bolster their defenses as quickly as possible. And, Michelle, if you are listening, I do apologize. Not good with names. In fact, by the end of this, I will have forgotten her name. Does anybody use WSL here? I've tried it. Mm, I don't have a real use for it. No, but it was my my gateway to Linux because I... We had we were told to install it for university, and I just moved to after a couple of weeks. I just moved to an Ubuntu VM, and then I just moved to uh, running Linux on hardware. So WSL was your gateway drug. Well, it was more like Parents they. Don't it let was your more like use WSL. it was more like requ- <laughs> a requirement for us to be able to pass the class. So was I forced into Linux? No. But I. I, you know, I my. Go ahead. My, you get that my first, first taste, you know, yeah. and you've got to have another. Yeah. You know, my first thought when they started talking about graphical applications on WSL and things like that, I thought, well, I'm not sure what the use is because most of these graphical applications that we like the most, the good ones, actually have Windows ports. But then I went and looked at some of the Windows ports to some of the graphical applications that I like to use on Linux, and in order to get them, you're steered towards some um, repository somewhere on uh, SourceForge or what's that other one? CNET or uh, what's a popular one out there? Anyway, you go to install. Let's let's take a good one. The worst one was uh, FileZilla. That's one I like to use on uh, on Linux. And if anybody's not aware, that is a application for moving files back and forth onto a uh, FTP or an SFTP server, and I use that a lot to move stuff on and off the uh, Jellyfin server. Well, the Windows port, when you download it, it's one of those applications that tries to sneak in other little silly, uh, I call them malware-level applications, you know, to try to sell you things and that, and here it is, this open-source application that's, if you're not watching what you're doing, they employ actually three different methods of trying to sneak things past somebody because Windows users are so used to that next, 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 next type uh, user interaction when they're installing software, and that's how they sneak some of these, you know, the toolbars for the the uh, browsers and things like that that are watching some of the things. Go get the application and install it. You'll see what I'm talking about. It, so uh, so if, if anybody was coming... And they were just using Windows, and they tried to install some of the software that we're used to using on Linux. They might have a bad uh, experience with it. So, okay, so enter WSL and their ability to install, install graphical applications directly from 
Ubuntu and Fedora repositories, you know, that's probably a more a cleaner way of getting some of the open source software if you're forced to use Windows. I think it's in a corporate. I think it's mainly for being able to develop uh, Linux ports of applic- of your own applications and being able to test them, run them on Linux. I mean, there's they use it for a lot of different things, but I think if it was if you were on Windows, a later uh, version of Windows, and you had mm-hmm. you wanted to use open source applications, it might be a better way to get them than than the Windows ports that are out there, just because they 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 seem to be distributed with some pretty less than savory means, in my opinion. I, don't I, wonder know. If... I mean, how do you live without the Yahoo addition to your toolbar? I mean, you got to have it. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> Yahoo's one thing. Oh, gosh. Have you ever seen people, especially in the old IE days, oh, yeah. when you they would tell you that their computer was running slow, and you'd go and look, and they would have, like, toolbars lined up under their ie taskbar you know covering a third of the screen and you're like well i think i've zeroed in on one problem oh you yeah know, right away and it's all because the end and they're fully aware that people have gotten comfortable with the whole next 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 click 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 you know because they just want their their thing that they wanted to install they didn't want to take the time to read everything and they're aware of that and that's how they sneak these little things like those toolbars in it was real bad in the old days well, why don't we next, next, next click to our wanderings? Well, uh, oh, okay. nice segue, Moss. Yeah. Oh, I tried. Uh, did I step on you, Bill? No, huh? Okay. You were the one that was worried this wasn't going to be long enough, so I'm just saying. No, no, no. I'm not worried whether it's not going to be long enough. I'm worried about whether I'm going to fall over my tongue from not having text to read. Okay. Anyhow. Um, I'll give you something to read. It might not be text, though. Yeah, well. Okay, be nice, be nice. Okay, I'm sorry. Bi-weekly wanderings. Well, uh, in my life, we got our car back from the shop. Cost a lot of money, but we got it back. Distro Hopper's Digest was a lot of fun, but it is getting longer. We have added Josh Hawk to the team. While recording Distro Hoppers, my audacity, while still recording, jumped back to the beginning of my recorded audio and started playing it simultaneously. This had me listening to my own already recorded audio from the beginning, and it put too much of a strain on my system, so Josh, who was talking at the time, was breaking up like crazy. I had to stop Audacity, go to the end of what I had recorded, and start the recording from there, and then when it was time for me to talk again, we did another uh, zero sync. So it all worked out in the end. I think some of you have commented on uh, enjoying the latest episode, and I appreciate that. Yes, I haven't finished it, but I started listening to it. Do you perhaps have uh, another opening position vacancy on this Hoppers? Um, it could be. Uh, the, the problem that we're having at Distro Hoppers is Tony is both a co-host and our editor, and he can't sit in a chair for very long. So we were very happy when we were keeping it 45 minutes to an hour. And now they're going hour, a quarter, hour and a half. And if we added another person, it would be longer than that. And we'd start yeah. getting into midcast. So, I, I guess I, I could just be <laughs> on the bench in case someone is not available. Yeah, we're not sure whether Josh Hawk will be able to continue. Uh, he is trying to get a real job. And uh, he may not have the... Uh, what it takes to say, hey, I need to be off one Wednesday morning a month. Uh, (laughs) Anyhow, 
I had a mess up on my. I'll, I'll keep that in mind, uh, Norbert, Thank and you. I'll bring it up to the team. I had a mess up on my testing computer's drives. Farron OS on SDB2 refused to boot, and then Mint on SD, SDA1 started booting to black screen. I found that SDB was formatted MS-DOS instead of GBT, and I decided to start over on SDB, formatting, installing, etc. Then Farron OS installed an LMDE booted in at RAMFS, which is what Farron OS was doing before. After fussing around trying to fix Mint, I just reinstalled Mint, which oddly resulted in a grub issue, but worked. Uh, for some reason, it wanted to install a 32-bit grub for Mint, and that messed up everything because then I couldn't grab the grub back to another distro. In the end, I installed four distros a total of five times, got everything working, but my next boot to LMDE last night after finishing all my configuring and waiting a day resulted in an init RAMFS prompt again, so I'm not done yet. I'm supposed to know all this stuff. Been doing this forever. I'm, I'm the closest thing to an expert on installing uh, OSs that I know. I think you need like a machine, uh, maybe just has Windows, because the majority of people, if they're going to dual boot, which is important for your show because you've got that one of your one of your categories is playing well with others. I need Windows. Well, that's the majority of people that go to install Linux distribution. If they're going to be dual booting at all, they're not going to be booting alongside other Linux distributions. They're going to be dual booting alongside Windows. That's that's the most likely scenario for most people. I think I could be wrong, but I think that's probably that's probably true. Um, so what you need is a machine that just has Windows on it, and then you can throw these distributions on it and see how they play alongside Windows. By general, but, oh, I have enough headaches with Linux multi boots. Oh, I don't say I'm ready to start that. I didn't one. say use the Windows; just have it there, because I've I've literally never. I've been using Linux for 20 years. I've never had a machine with more than one Linux distro on the root. Well, shame on you. I, I, I mean, that's what that's what virtual machines is for for me. But uh, I, I I appreciate in your case, you know, you need to be able to test all these out. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. My general good advice. Well, I, I would rather just run everything on Bodhi, but uh, uh, there's a lot of quirks to uh e17 that i haven't figured out yet like and, what uh, for example oh my general good advice well, when, when you're trying for when, any sort i'm still answering a question so, norbert <laughs> when, when i go to um do a configuration you have to find where the blanket is uh there the configuration on e17 is really really complex and they use a lot of the same types of words to say something different yeah uh, also, I've been having a lot of trouble with uh, my uh, dialog boxes popping up under the window I'm using instead of over, and I can't figure that one out. Okay, Norbert, you were saying? My general good advice on any sort of dual booting or multi-booting is that make sure that all your, if you have multiple disks, all your disks and all everything is uh, working using uh, UEFI. Because uh, I assume that most computers can handle uh, both UEFI and legacy boot. And maybe they can 
uh, even at the same time, so they can list the boot entries that uh, are, some of them are UFI, some of them are legacy. But uh, when most said that he had trouble with the uh, Farron, uh, I think one of the uh, conclusions were, conclusions were that maybe the new version of Farron just doesn't like to play nice with legacy boot. So I would advise for anyone who wants to multi-boot distros or even do a boot windows with with uh, Linux, just make sure that if your computer can do UEFI, that you are using UEFI and your disk is uh, and the partition table on your disk is a GPT table and not yeah, a. Well, my uh, my pre my previous machines were all UEFI, and uh, somebody convinced me I should be using legacy boot. So on this one, I'm using legacy boot, and uh, I I listen to what people advise, but I'm getting conflicting advice now, and it's rough. Yeah. <laughs> and in case someone has problems with Grub on UEFI, you could always give a try to system boot or refine because there's a chance that uh, your oh. problems might go away. Yeah, I, I just had to. I knew he'd bring shameless that. plug. I, I, I just had to plug <laughs> refine because it it's the single. Greatest thing I, I gotta ever try tried. that one. Norbert things. is sponsored by Refine. <laughs> well, I'm not. But and we're I'm, picking up a well, lot the one, of sponsors. Well, the difference I noticed. <laughs> I'm not yeah, saying I'm not I, saying I, I have a price, but I'm also not saying that I don't. <laughs> I think <laughs> Refine would probably re- Refine would probably enjoy being sponsored by Mintcast, but that. <laughs> That's know what really... you've been up to. Oh, anyway, yeah. And if anybody's not aware, Moss does another podcast called uh, Full Circle Weekly News. And uh, let me go on record for saying that he's probably got the best, concise, right down to earth, right down to the measure uh, reading of the news, what's important that's going on out there uh, of any news podcast out there. I, I just recently started listening to it full time. Thank you, Bill. The check's in the mail. I really enjoy it. Yeah. (laughs) Cha-ching. Anyway, so for my part, uh, gosh, uh, work has been, uh, it's continued to be crazy as of late. Um, And that's that's become the normal thing now uh, since the last Saturday stream a week and a day ago. I've been back and forth to Pittsburgh twice. For anybody that's not aware, I'm a truck driver by trade. Um, I've been up to the Wisconsin Dales once and out to Cape Girardeau, Missouri once. And much of that has been due to uh, the fact that my regular dispatcher has been off for a week. And the guy that's been covering for him is actually one of the drivers that's out on uh, light duty. Because he got hurt or something, though. I don't know what that's all about because he seems to walk around carrying a mug of coffee and at the shop just fine. Um. Yeah, he's had me kind of a behind the eight ball all week. You know, it's taken me seven years to train the dispatcher I got, and then all of a sudden he's gone, and I I don't think I got time to train this new guy. Uh, so that all being said, it hasn't been bad for earnings because I'm paid by the hour, but it uh you know it was it was a bit tiring because most nights I didn't get home till. One night I got home at 12.30, another night I got home at 3 in the morning, and then I had to go back out at 9 o'clock the next morning. Or, well, 9 o'clock later that morning, so, yeah. Um, Linux-wise, I, I took my laptop with me all week with every intention, God help me, 
of uh, working on the show notes for today's show, which just didn't happen. What I ended up doing was getting sidetracked, uh, trying to find an alternative way to run my NextCloud servers. Uh, as some might be aware, I've been using NextCloud for some time for all my personal and family cloud needs. Uh, lately, I've grown less and less comfortable with the idea of relying on the NextCloud Snap. Now, it's not necessarily a technical decision because I just don't know the direction Snap is going. Because it, it's as far as Linux goes, Snap just seems to be kind of a uh, black box in our in our world you know it, it it just doesn't seem to be any wise old men out here anymore well the snap backend is sort of like a black box because it's not open source yeah and you just don't have and, and some of the people that used to advocate for it the minute they left canonical and i'm not going to name any names i don't think i need to uh some of the people that used to advocate for it the minute they left canonical they made it a point to make sure everybody knew that they were not only ditching snaps but adding flat pack support to their distributions you know so i don't know nobody will come out and say if that was a technical decision a philosophical one or or what you know so it's, you know as time as goes on i've become less and less comfortable with the whole snap thing and, and to be honest to get snap to work in the way that i want it to where the snap is running, but yet I want all my stuff stored on my big hard drives, which are separate for, from the partition that the snap is installed on. You have to do either a bind mount or you got to tell ZFS where to physically mount the the drive to, which in my opinion is kind of a hacky way of doing it. You know, if it was any other type of container format, there are ways built in to expose the parts of the container that would be necessary to have write access to other drives. And with snaps, you have to do this hacky thing where you either do the bind mount or whatever. And they don't, the, the other problem is documentation because that is one thing that is visibly absent from the documentation. Official documentation is how to handle, uh, exterior or uh, storage that's outside of the partition that the snap is installed on because snaps are so are running from this from this uh, directory that's buried in your var directory it's it's like var slash snap slash uh, next cloud slash current or common slash next cloud slash slash data and that's where they mount the storage directory. And that's where you would have to mount an external drive if you were going to use that. And that's that's a bit of a hack, in my opinion. And that's the snap is the only one that requires you to do that. Well, anyway, I've been looking at other ways to run that. And um, the Docker container is a compelling option. But if you're going to expose it to the Internet, you have to run a separate container that's running an nginx proxy server reverse proxy that you can attach another container to that's running all of the let's encrypt stuff to get you a uh, tls certificate to run an https domain name to 
which is, in my opinion, that's just add, adding more complexity to the whole thing. So I've been working on uh, installing it from scratch with with some tutelage I've gotten from a couple of YouTube videos out there. I think that's going to be the direction I go with the with the one I've actually run two Nextcloud servers. One I expose to the internet, the internet. The other one I do not. Um, which I'll get to here in a little bit when we get into our innards. But uh, the yeah, one, yeah, and we may we may be asking you to do some things for the team in the future. It, yeah, and it we'll might be discussing that down and check this out. Yeah, yeah. For anybody that's not aware, we're we're discussing options for handling our uh, our document management in the future. You know, we a peek behind the curtains. Uh, during the last, uh, I don't know, half hour before the show, it's pretty uh, common for us to all get on and do our show notes at the exact same time because reasons. But uh, <laughs> we, with Google ripping the rug out from under us, or presumably ripping the rug out from under us, we're not going to have the option to uh, have free cloud storage the way we're used to doing it. We we're considering the option of going with a self-hosted sort of thing. And that's that's the other reason that I've been working on trying to come up with something that I can share that'll make sense, that'll be accessible to everybody on the team. I mean, we don't need a lot. We just need something that we can upload our documents to. And, uh, oh, we it's how we collate all of our all of our audio files and then the person right one person needs access to that too well everybody needs uh, access well, but one person needs to be able to download that to make the audio only version of the show so that's been one of the motivational factors behind me doing it what was you going to say moss and we appreciate that but why don't we move to page six and hear from josh okay well, uh, yeah, kind of uh, piggybacking off Bill there, I've also been working a ton overtime lately. And I haven't been able to do much lately, uh, tech-related or otherwise. I've just been too worn out by the time that I get home. Not that there aren't things to do, but I just haven't had the energy to get to most of them. Because I'm getting old and tired. Uh, I did do a little work on my partner's computer, though she rarely uses it. I replaced her very dated monitor with my old one, which is still dated, but less so. I also upgraded her Mint installation from 20.1 to 20.3, and it all went smoothly. And I replaced her failing keyboard and mouse with some extras I had, and those are working fine now, too. Uh, my daughter, Busser, bought me Final Fantasy 1 from Steam, a game I absolutely loved on NES when I was younger, so I'm looking forward to playing it again when time permits and um yeah my music collection continues to expand because i buy cds like they're going out of style for some reason uh, this week's purchases include the new albums from the red hot chili peppers mashuga satan the band ghost and once human as well as a couple of older exodus cds if anyone's familiar with any of them and lastly and unfortunately, due to some life circumstances and the limited amount of time I have, this will probably be my last episode on the podcast for the time being. Boy, drop a bomb, White. I know it. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> yeah, that was visibly and uh, 
probably strategically left out of the show notes. Yeah, I didn't want to cause too much of a ruckus, you know. I try not to cause ripples in the pond. Mm. Yeah. But I do plan on trying to be back when possible, but being a full-time co-host, it's just not going to be possible for a while. And uh, i really like to thank all the other hosts, you guys, past and present, you know, that have helped me out, and the, and the listeners here for having me. I really enjoyed the experience, and I've learned a lot along the way. So thank you all, and uh, hope to be seeing you soon. And that's it for me, Norbert. Yeah, well, some things happened, and I also did some things, but uh, I'm mostly doing my uh, work for my uh, thesis in order to finally get my uh, degree at university. And uh, I've been listening to a bunch of music by doing it. And I just want to give a shout out to uh, the guitarist named Nick Johnston, who's been, uh, whose music I've been listening to quite a lot these past few weeks. And I even have one of his albums. I've been to one of his concerts and uh, I basically that was the first physical album that I ever bought. And uh, he signed it. I didn't ask for it and it uh, kind of uh, caught me by surprise. But then I realized, uh, okay, I should try to collect signed albums. So this this is why I usually only buy an album when I have the chance to sign it in order to have some sort of a, a rule <laughs> rules in place. Because I, otherwise I wouldn't know which album to get, to get because my... Uh, uh, library of music on Tidal is quite large. Uh, I just, I'm just really comfortable with using Tidal or previously I used Spotify. Uh, some people would argue that uh, it's really nice to own your, your music, but I guess I don't want to own my music, just be able to listen to it, except when I have a physical copy, which I do like to have on CD, because I don't really, I'm not really interested in vinyl. But, uh, Something interesting that has been happening is April Fools, and I only was fooled once, but it was a really rough one because uh, the evening before April first, I got an email from my VPN provider, which was not unusual because they do send uh, regular newsletters, and they said that they are going to be acquired, and I was quite shocked because I've been using the same that VPN for many years, and. Uh, yeah, in their email they said they're going to be acquired, and I was, for a few seconds, uh, I really was sort of, in sort of a panic, then I realized it was just an April Fool's joke. But uh, thankfully that was the, really the only uh, time that I was fooled by something. Uh, something related to April 1st is uh, uh, the first time for in the past five years, Reddit is doing plays. So Reddit plays is a huge canvas, a thousand by thousand pixels, and each Reddit user can only place one pixel every five minutes. And people have to get together and coordinate in order to be able to draw something with these pixels, while also defending their drawings, because other people can just paint over them. And it's, it is really chaotic, but it's also really nice to look at even as a whole, or by zooming in, uh, there are uh, there's a bunch of stuff here. But uh, towards the left side, there's a new slash Linux corner, which is a pixelated drawing of Tux the Penguin with with a bunch of Linux uh, distro logos around him, as well as Gnome and KDE. 
it has the likes of Fedor and Debian represented, but as also a Steam Deck and uh, one distro that I would have been really happy to see on it was Void Linux, which was not present. But on the second day of this thing, it just uh, got added by the people. So I'm really happy about that. Uh, my country, Hungary, also has a couple of drawings. My favorite one is uh, towards the top. There's a Hungarian flag and there's a picture of Vuk, the little fox uh, here, which is a, a classical Hungarian cartoon character. And uh, speaking of Hungary, we have an election going on there, counting the votes right as we speak. Uh, the government election, which is really interesting because it looks to be the ratio of people, the number of people who participate looks to be a, an all-time record, or at least the record in the past 20 or so years. On the tech side of things, I haven't really been doing much. I'm really happy continuing running Fedora. I haven't really booted into Void Linux or anything else as much this past two weeks, so I've been mainly using Fedora. So I'm, I feel stronger and stronger about just using Fedora for the foreseeable future. It just, I just seem to, it just seems to click with me. And I realized that uh, with a bunch of the GNOME apps being ported to uh, GTK4, I was, since I'm using XFC on my desktop, I was hesitant to decide, I couldn't decide whether I would like to upgrade to Fedora 36 right away, because uh, I use a custom theme and I was uh, I was I was worried that uh, there's a couple of GNOME apps I use and the GTK4 versions, the Liberator versions would just wouldn't uh, respect my, my system theme. But then I learned that uh, the, most of the application that I use, which is, I think, gedit, which is not getting a Liberator version anyway because it's deprecated, and also GNOME Disks, which hasn't been ported to Liberator at all yet on the stable branch of GNOME, so I can just update to Fedora 36 and not have to worry about uh, Liberator on my desktop. But the fact, I I do have to say that I'm a, I'm a bit disappointed, but I, I understand that they couldn't get all of the GNOME apps ported to Liberator. But because of this right now, if you use something with GNOME 42, like Fedora 36, some of the apps have the new Adwaita look and some of them have the old Adwaita look. But I could solve this by replacing the old Adwaita look, so the Lego theme, the legacy theme, as they now call it, by uh, ADW GTK3, which is a GTK3 theme that imitates the Adwaita. So everything looks consistent now. But I'm a bit. the reason I'm a bit disappointed is I think the GNOME team could have just updated the legacy Adwaita theme to look more like the new Adwaita theme to improve consistency. That's just a, a paper cut of mine. And this is one of the reasons that I'm not really as excited about GNOME, 40 and, uh, GNOME 42, and I'm more and more looking forward to GNOME 43, where I expect consistency to be a lot better than have, it is now. Have you tried the Ubuntu beta yet, Norbert? No, I've only tried the Fedora beta. I've tried the Ubuntu Nightlies a few months ago. It didn't have the final theme and wallpaper yet, I think, but I really do like the new uh, official uh, jellyfish wallpaper for Ubuntu. It's not staring into your soul like the impatient we did, or even I think the the hippo was also staring at you. And uh, I, t I had a look at some of the screenshots and videos about Ubuntu, and uh, the new Yaru theme looks kind of like uh, Liberator, but it's not Liberator yet. 
Yeah, and they Which have that accent colors that you can choose too. So that makes it gives it a little more uh, versatility. Yeah. Actually, I'm surprised that accent colors haven't been implemented in neither Ubuntu nor GNOME itself years ago, because Windows has had it since I think the beginning of uh, Windows 8 or something. To be able to well, just well, you know, we've been saying for years that GNOME. Uh, basically abandoned all their users so they don't listen to what the users want. It took them this long to figure that out. Yeah, app indicators, I, please. Please. App indicators is my number one gripe with GNOME. Well, I know now that that's not just a GNOME thing because uh, uh, Danny from the uh, elementary OS team fame took to Twitter and was uh, arguing against all the merits of uh, app indicator or any kind of any kind of system tray type uh paradigm at all you know what she drank the kool-aid wait yeah. wait it, it i didn't even realize they kind of have a point because the other day i was thinking about okay what could we use instead of app indicators and i remember how when windows 7 came out skype had a feature when you wouldn't be able to close the window it would just minimize itself to the taskbar so you fine do that then yeah so you could in gnome i think you could just use the dash instead of the system tray and if something is running in the background it will be present on the dash and you could just right click the big icon icon on the dash and say close the app and it, i was thinking the same yeah, thing it, it, it could, could run work. in the dash and that would work and then you would get your notifications through the through the notification system yeah so that it, would be something but what they're doing is nothing which is not yeah. there. I think what they want you to do is open the window and then move it to another desktop, you know, but that's not everybody's workflow. The virtual yeah. desktop thing is not how a lot of people do things, you know? Well, I, I, I think what the counter argument to that is if, if it's not your thing, then don't use it. But a lot of people don't have a yeah. choice, but to use GNOME because it is the default in so much, so many distros. Hmm. I really do want to like it, though, because there are things about GNOME, especially when you're using a laptop with all of its keyboard in integrations yeah. and all the, you know, your swipes and things, you know, it's 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 really good for that. And it gives you a little bit more use of the screen real estate that you've got. So there's things to like about GNOME if they just weren't so stinking. And even, okay, even if you don't want to make it part of the default experience give us a standard api that we can go by to make a meaningful extendable framework for it for app indicators i think i think there was news about someone i think the fedora team doing just that so i yeah. think there's an ongoing effort on standardizing how app indicators how the backend so the api for app indicators should work so okay, well I then, think... will that be blessed by the by the GNOME you know team you know to make that part of the? I've also seen some concept art. I think official concept art of how GNOME wants to reintroduce app indicators. I I couldn't find it the other day, but I think there's some. So I expect something to happen in the next year with app indicators. That'll be interesting. But also, is that about it for you? Oh uh, yeah, I I wanted to say one more thing, but I think okay. I forgot it. So I guess it wasn't important. So we can. Oh, we can move forward. <laughs> okay, let's move to Linux innards. Oh, actually, I remember. I remember what I wanted to say. I wanted to say how 
Let's not move to Linux. Yeah. I wanted to say how my favorite thing about GNOME is Matter, the compositor, because of how good the Wayland implementation is and all around it, it is a compositor. Because my list uh, on the... Uh, because my least favorite thing about XFC, which I use, is I think their compositor. So my number one wanted feature in XFC is for them to improve their compositor. But uh, I, I think this is why I really, sometimes I go and try to run GNOME on my desktop, but I realize it. I don't really like GNOME for my desktop workflow, but I like it for my laptop, as Bill said, with all the uh, laptop uh, touchpad uh, gestures and stuff. Yeah. So, and I think which is the I think the biggest strength of Budgie is using Matter without the GNOME workflow. I think I've said that a bunch of times, but which is I I'm, I'm kind of disappointed that Budgie GNOME is uh, Budgie with the GNOME Budgie on top of the GNOME stack is kind of going away. It's still maintained, but I think it's fair to say that their most of their focus will be on the EFL rebase of Budgie. I still look forward to it, but I would really like to have a GNOME-based budgie for the foreseeable future. This has been another episode of the Mintcast podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter, at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint. Thanks to Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com for our theme music, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Mint.